Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Less than a year after the start of Operation Rocky Freedom, American soldiers were fighting house-to-house in the city of Fallujah. Known as a hotbed of radical activity, Fallujah saw coalition forces storming buildings and trading machine gun fire with an almost invisible enemy. Fought by Army, Marine, and Naval servicemen, the month-long struggle known as Operation Phantom Fury stands as the harshest fighting seen by U.S. soldiers since the Vietnam War. After a month of fighting, the city was recaptured, and the final chapter remains to be written. On this episode, we discuss Operation Phantom Fury, the Second Battle of Fallujah. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. Join the conversation, the community is always growing. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. We have a lot coming up, so I hope to see you soon. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. One of the things I really pride myself on, as a historian and as a person, is keeping my word. And one thing I always promise is, if you reach out to me and you request an episode, we will do it. I had the very good fortune of speaking with, via Facebook, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer, an active duty Marine, hoorah, named Chris, back in January of 2016. And he had a pretty interesting request, and one that I immediately was excited about. But again, the list was long. I told him we'd get to it, and here we are. It was Operation Phantom Fury, uh, the Battle of Fallujah in 2004. Now, I want to do this and preface it in a few different ways. Uh, one is by saying this. The Iraq War is one of the longest wars in American history. It's difficult to talk about in today's world because we're still living it. It was controversial in its own time. And unlike all the other topics we discuss in wartime, I actually remember this one. I lived through it. Uh, not the war, but uh, the lead up to the war and the political debates that surrounded it. I am very... Uh, humbled and nervous about this episode because this is really one of the first episodes where veterans who fought in the war and maybe even participated in this battle can hear my account of the Battle of Fallujah. Now, if I get something wrong or, let's say, can elaborate on something more, maybe guilty of omission, it happens, please let me know. Facebook, email, Twitter, I will respond. So I feel like the pressure's on this time. I want to do good by Chris and the men and women who serve with him. I want to do good by the uh, men and women who fought at Fallujah. 
in 2004. And I want to navigate some pretty difficult waters, uh, as this is, again, an ongoing conflict in many ways, and still controversial. Uh, I don't want to talk about politics in this episode. Um, That would be rehashing a very long story. If you are interested in the lead-up to the Battle of Fallujah, go ahead and take a look at Season 4. I did a whole episode on George W. Bush and his historic legacy. And we talk a lot about the lead-up to the Iraq War, the decisions, both good and bad, in the Iraq War leading up to it, uh, and the motivations behind it. But that's not what we're dealing with today. Because the story of Fallujah is the story of people. People who have families and people who have loved ones here in the United States and also in the UK and who willingly gave that up to serve their countries and go to a world that they really would have never seen otherwise in Iraq and in some cases give their lives. So, again, this is a a tricky episode for me because I want to keep my emotions out of it. But I remember when this battle went down and I remember watching on the news every night and also hearing from these new generations of, of internet journalists that were really, for the first time, giving us here in the States up-to-date information on events as they happen. It was really something. Uh, In the case of Geraldo Rivera, uh, he gave us too much information, and he gave away important military information that got him removed from the front lines. But at any rate, um, I digress. That's the world we live in now. As I mentioned previously, uh, I do not want to re-litigate the politics of this event in the lead-up at least on the American side. But I think the politics of the Iraqi side are what most of us are unfamiliar with, and I think where this podcast is best served to go first. So, very briefly, I'd like to talk about Saddam Hussein, who he was, what he did, uh, and what predicated the the really uh, dire circumstances we're going to see today when we talk about the Battle of Fallujah, Operation Phantom Fury. Saddam Hussein was a dictator. He was not a nice guy. He ruled through fear, oppression, and force. Uh, He didn't face much in the way of internal rebellion. Us in the Western world, we think whenever your leader doesn't serve you, uh, why don't you just remove them? Because like all dictators, Saddam Hussein had a very easy way of dealing with his problems. Uh, He just killed most of the challengers. And that's a real hallmark of Saddam Hussein's legacy, I think. Hussein killed people who would challenge him, and he preemptively uh, would eliminate groups uh, who would even maybe potentially in the future think about challenging him. Not a good person, in my opinion. And you won't find many people who think he was, but uh, he ruled Iraq with an iron fist. Now, what is Iraq? Iraq is an ancient place. The world's very first civilization in its history emerges in Iraq on the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's where the battle we're going to talk about today also, by chance, occurs. That is not the first time in today's episode that you're going to see these uh, unusual, coincidental, historical tie-ins to this battle. Uh, But that's where it was. Iraq is a real melting pot of a place. 
uh, in that it has many different groups inside of it. But it's not a melting pot in the way that they actually mold together. Iraq was a very uh, separate, segregated country. It's about the size of Texas. And it's geographically divided into three major regions. Uh, in the south, you have uh, a very clear ethnic majority of people who are Muslim. Everyone we talk about today will be Muslim. Uh, but who are a very unique sect of, of Islam uh, called Shia. You may know them. Uh, most of the Shia in the world live in what is today Iran. There are pockets of Shia in other places, like Lebanon and like the parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, but just as a preface, um, something like 70 to 75% of the Muslim world uh, is not Shia. 70 to 75% of the Muslim world is Sunni. So that's important you understand this. Iraq, historically, has been a very Shia-dominated place. Uh, Saddam Hussein is not one of them. Saddam Hussein represents who was a minority, a group that was a minority in Iraq, uh, the Sunni. Again, the Sunni are the majority of Muslims worldwide, 70%, if not more. Uh, but in Iraq, they tended to be the minority. The fact that Saddam Hussein was a member of the minority, ruling very harshly over the majority, uh, will sow the seeds of discontent for a very long time. And the Sunni-Shia divide is one that's more in Muslim dogma. Uh, maybe we can talk about that in a future season, but for now, just know that they're all Muslim in different sects, and um, a lot of bloodshed has emerged out of that over the last, say, 1,300 years. Saddam's part of, of the world, Saddam's part of Iraq, uh, was not the South. The South is heavily Shia. Uh, but his supporters lived in the western reaches of Iraq. Imagine uh, Iraq like a triangle on its side. Okay? Uh, so that it comes to a point on its far left edge. And the far left side of Iraq was an area that was predominantly Sunni, again, the majority in that region, but the minority in Iraq. Uh, if you're, are you confused yet? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, called the Sunni Triangle. And again, uh, this was a minority population in Iraq who, as it turned out, had the ethnic and demographic tie-in with the dictator, so they got all the benefits, and the Shia were largely left out. To the north... Uh, you had a real mix of peoples. Uh, the majority of them were an entirely different race of people. They were not Arabs, called the Kurds. Uh, and the Kurds were based in and around the city of Kirkuk. Uh, and they were Sunni, like the Arabs to the south. Uh, so they had that in common, but they were not racially the same. An entirely different race of people. Uh, they were not well liked by the Sunni Arabs, they were not well liked by the Shia Arabs. The Shia Arabs were not liked by the Sunni Arabs and vice versa. Um, you had groups that were Christian groups. You had groups that were uh, uh, of a different faith altogether, a different race altogether, the Yazidi in the north. What I'm saying is Iraq is a really problematic place from a demographic standpoint, from an ethnographic standpoint, from a racial standpoint. 
And by the way, historically, these people never had anything in common until after World War I when the British and French, thanks a lot, mate, uh, did us a favor when they uh, drew a, a large black line around really four groups of people who did not get along and made them live as one. And that was the birth of Iraq, again, after World War I. So, um, you know, that's, that's something we have to live with. But at any rate, so that is Iraq. And that is Saddam. Uh, Saddam, as a minority candidate, as a minority leader, uh, cannot just rule through the people's love of him. He has to rule through force because he's really not well-liked there or wanted there, uh, at least amongst the Shia and the Kurds. Uh, those in the Sunni Triangle, which, by the way, right in the middle is a city called Fallujah, which we'll talk about today, they do like him. So in 2003, George W. Bush uh, and his administration makes the decision based on intelligence that they may or may not have actually received that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction invade Iraq with a coalition of countries behind them. The United States and the British will be uh, the two leaders in this regard. Their prime minister was a man named Tony Blair. And Tony Blair does pretty well for himself on TV nowadays, George W. Bush tends to stay off of television, but at any rate, that's where we are. Iraq is invaded by coalition forces uh, in March of 2004 uh, with something they've called shock and awe, which was a bombardment of the city of Baghdad with just an endless supply of ordnance, bombs and missiles and, and all sorts of things. Uh, it, it utterly demolished major parts of the city. And with the invasion being in late March, by April 9th, the city of Baghdad falls, and Saddam Hussein flees into hiding and is removed from power. And it's that easy. The American and British and coalition forces, during that really less than four-week time period, uh, were fighting Saddam's army. And they were also fighting a very specialized wing of Saddam's army, which we're going to talk about today called the Republican Guard. In fact, I should correct that. The Republican Guard was not part of Saddam's army at all. They were his own special military force. They wore red berets. Saddam Hussein was a member of a party called the Ba'ath Party. In English, we would spell that as B-A-A-T-H. There is, of course, uh, no exact English translation from Arabic, but the Ba'ath Party was Saddam's party, and since Saddam made the rules, you really had to be in it or you would be punished. So one of the first things that the Bush administration does when they take over Iraq uh, is they stage a pulling down of a statue of Saddam Hussein, um, and they basically put out an alert. Anyone who is part of the Ba'ath Party, in any way, shape, or form, uh, will be uh, removed from their positions uh, and stripped of their power. Now remember, everybody in the country, essentially had to be part of the Ba'ath Party. If not, you risk just disappearing one day. And by removing all of those people, including the soldiers, you left a pretty big vacuum of power. Where are those soldiers going to go? Men who made a living serving in Saddam's army. They're going to fight, but they're not going to fight the way they used to. You take away their ability to earn a living, to... Uh, view themselves as having a purpose, you drive them 
to extremist groups. Looking back at the Iraq war in its early stages, experts across the board, military and civilian, will all agree, myself included, that debathification in the heavy-handed manner it was done drove many, many people in a very counterproductive way toward more extremist elements. Now, the first part of the Iraq war, again, four weeks, is fairly easy to understand. It's the American, British, and coalition forces versus Saddam Hussein's uh, army of Iraq. But when Baghdad falls on April 9th, 2004, the game changes. Because theoretically, the coalition forces have won. Mission accomplished. George W. Bush stood on, a, on an aircraft carrier in California and said as much. Mission accomplished. But the thing was, the war was really just getting started. I mean, everybody knew the actual invasion of Iraq would be over pretty quickly. Reason being, the United States military is the most advanced, powerful military force that has ever existed in the history of the world. Our military today would defeat any other army in world history, bar none. Iraq was not competitive. Now, we did lose Americans and, and coalition soldiers in the process. I don't mean to undermine that. But from a strictly macro view, they had nothing for the Americans. Uh, Saddam fell pretty easily. And of course, a few months later, they find him hiding in a spider hole. And uh, he's executed for the uh, unscrupulous person that he was. But this leads to a whole host of problems. You win the war... Can you win the peace? I'm not so sure about that. We've seen all empires in world history fall for this. My time period, the Seven Years' War, again, I study empire in North America, uh, did a very similar thing. They won the war against the French in 1763, but they lost the peace, which led to a massive rebellion we call the American Revolution. This is not unique to the British. This is not unique to the Americans. This happens to literally all empires. At some point, there is a breaking point. There is a tipping point. Winning the war seems to be the easy part. Keeping the peace is much harder. And this is why studying the Iraq War from the historical vantage point is so, so difficult. But like all things in life, the difficult are the most rewarding. Now, a question as an aside, before we jump into what's going on in Iraq in 2004, after the fall of Saddam Hussein is when does something become history? Whenever I think of the Iraq War, I can remember reading books about the war during the war. One of the first great books that came out on the Iraq War while it was still going on, so in that case, unfinished, was a book called Fiasco uh, by Tom Ricks. Uh, books on Fallujah by guys like Bing West. I mean, these are important books. These are the standards today. But... Amazingly, at the end of the book, it just sort of ends with a question mark. You know, it's like a, it's like a bad Star Wars or Harry Potter ending. Uh, because they didn't know what was going to happen. And newsflash, we still don't know what's going to happen. So we lose the, the people fighting the war. The men and women literally sacrificing everything. To the politics. And what I can say is the Iraq War historically can be studied the way we study the Civil War or the War of 1812 or World War II. It has battles. It has benchmark moments. It has generals whose names are worth knowing. 
but a lot of historians aren't willing to do it yet. And it's not because they have some beef against it. It's just because the story is not finished. We have American and coalition troops back in Iraq right now, fighting an enemy, as we'll talk about later, that is not that different from the one we're used to seeing. So what is the challenge of the Iraq War? Now that that's uh, aside. Uh, beating the Iraqi government was easy for the coalition. Keeping the peace was more difficult. And you can understand why. If you are a Shia person living in Iraq, for the length of Saddam Hussein's reign and the Ba'ath Party's control of the country, you were treated essentially as a second-class citizen. Saddam Hussein uh, destroyed your religious sites as punishments. Saddam Hussein did not give you any, any meaningful right to vote. You had no place in his country. The Sunni, who were the minority, ruled the entire thing. But now the Sunni are gone. Saddam's gone. And now it's your turn. One of the things George Bush really wanted to do was give all Iraqis the right to vote. He believed, and again we talk about this in season four, that if you could insert a democracy into the Middle East, which is really a world of dictators and kings, that democracy would become infectious and spread and people would want it if they just saw it work. So Iraq was sort of Bush's way of artificially inserting democracy into the Middle East and at the same time giving the Americans an ally they could trust. So he gave the people in Iraq the right to vote and no surprise with the Shia being the majority and being oppressed for the last several decades they overwhelmingly won. They elected a Shia president. They put Shia members in their legislature. Even at the local level, the Shia take over Iraq. Nothing wrong with that. They were the majority. It's a very obvious change that's going to happen. But I think the Bush administration underestimated the sectarian violence, or at least the level of discontent between these groups. George W. Bush is a great guy. Okay? Um, I call it pretty much down the middle most of the time. The smell comes from both sides. You know, I understand. Democrat, Republican is not a game I play so much, as much as the person. I think W is a great guy. Uh, but he, I don't know that he fully understood the complexities of Iraq. At one point, during his briefings, some of his specialists sat down and tried to tell him the difference between a Shia Muslim and a Sunni Muslim. And W at the end sort of said, and this is quoted, uh, he said, Shia, Sunni, I thought they were all Muslim. Like, if you're president, if you're sending people into a war zone in a place like Iraq, however you feel about W, you got to know that. And that's why I'm talking about it so much, because I want you to know it too. That is, for someone who, who cares about history and cares about the details... That is mind-blowing to me that that wasn't like day one stuff in that White House. Uh, maybe someday I'll be there, and it will be. Um, I heard a good quote today. They said, they said there's two different types of historians. Uh, some who want to know a little, and some who want to know everything. And that's probably true. There's very little in between. Uh, the fact that you're listening to a podcast right now about history tells me you and I are on the same page. But again... Put the domestic politics aside. Uh, let's deal with Fallujah. As the Shia take over Iraq, the Sunni, that minority that for so long was in power, 
start to rise up in rebellion. And again, they're not welcomed in Baghdad. That's a very heavily Shia area now. They're not welcomed in the north. It's a, a Kurdish area. So they retreat to that Sunni triangle in the far west. One of the major cities being Fallujah. And they regroup. Now, who are these Sunni? Most of them are good people. Most of them are like you and me. They go to work. They try to make a living. So on and so forth. But not all of them. Extreme voices start to emerge. One of them is named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And al-Zarqawi is the leader of a group that calls itself Al-Qaeda in Iraq. This is the same Al-Qaeda that was responsible for the attacks of 9-11. But it's a regional base. And that's something that's important to understand too. Al-Qaeda Al tends to be um, regionally specific. He starts to voice his concerns about Iraq. He starts to say, the Shia have taken over this country. The coalition of the Americans and the Brits have given it to him, uh, given it to them. We must rise up. So in that Sunni triangle, uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi starts to gain a following. And he starts to say, we can use this area as a safe zone, or we can plan the re revolution, rebellion, or insurgency, or from the American perspective, terrorist actions to push the Americans out. That's where the story of Fallujah begins. Because Fallujah is one of these cities that becomes a hotbed for this type of thinking. Now, Fallujah itself, pretty big city. You're talking 300,000 people. And it is a modern city. Now, modern by what specifications? Uh, the city itself is dusty, it's crumbly. Uh, no American would probably want to live there. But it's big. And for Iraq, again, modern place. Cell phones, internet, electricity. This isn't like some desert outpost. It's a major city. There's bridges and tolls to get in, uh, buses and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a big problem. 300,000 people. And this sort of uh, uh, Sunni emergence, Sunni insurgency begins to take place there. Many of the soldiers who fought as Saddam Hussein's special security force, the Republican Guard, the elite, really, of the, of the Iraqi military uh, command structure, they don't have anywhere to go now. They're Ba'athists. They cannot serve. So they go to Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And they take off uniforms, and they put on street clothes, and they know how to use major weapons and machine guns, so they do. And they all start to talk, congregate in that city. Uh, this will take us to April of 2004. In April of 2004, Fallujah will really become a known commodity here in the West for the first time. When four Blackwater security contractors uh, will be brutally killed by a mob of people and their bodies will be uh, burned and put on display in a horrific and grisly way. Uh, if they weren't some of the most famous pictures from the Iraq War, I would tell you, do not look for them. But odds are, if you're listening, you may have seen this already. Terrible stuff. Uh, most Americans are horrified by this. They're shocked by this. There needs to be some measure of revenge for these security contractors. You're going to hear a term like security contractor a few times. What is a security contractor? These are not American soldiers. Maybe they were previously, but these are individual 
uh, contractors, private citizens who are well-trained uh, to do jobs that a lot of American soldiers just really are, are, can't do because they're they're doing other important things. These people will, uh, you know, serve as security for convoys and, and, and things like that. These aren't people doing secret missions necessarily, but just doing some of the day-to-day -day security work that most Americans can't because, again, uh, they don't have the resources to do so. After that happens, uh, the United States military will launch its first attack on Fallujah uh, in something they call Operation Vigilant Resolve. This will be April, again, 2004. And it, it sort of gives everyone a taste of things to come. Uh, the American military is obviously well-trained, the most advanced military force in the world. And they find some problems in Fallujah. One is that there is a population there that is pretty divided. Most people want nothing to do with an insurgency, but some of them clearly do. And we don't really know as Americans in the coalition who we can trust. One of the big things we want to do is work with the newly rebuilt Iraqi army to help them rebuild their country, take it over, and hand it off to them. Uh, but we don't know who in the Iraqi military we can actually trust. And this is a problem that American soldiers have faced really for the last now 15 years, uh, from 2001 uh, all the way to 2016. Time and again, you get close to a person from Iraq or from Afghanistan, and it turns out they're working for the other side. Most of the time it doesn't work that way, but that's always in the back of your mind. At the end of Vigilant Resolve, the Americans agree, uh, after working with a person in the city named Mohammed Latif, uh, he's a, a, a noted leader in the, in the city, uh, that Fallujah could be returned to Iraqi control if and only if they forced all the insurgents uh, and terrorists and rebels out of the city. And they said, of course we will, and moved on. Well, for the next seven months, that clearly did not happen. Uh, for the next seven months, Fallujah immediately became the biggest terrorist hotbed in all of Iraq. Uh, people from different countries came there to fight. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq really sort of set up there. Um, soldiers from Chechnya, from the Philippines, from Yemen, uh, soldiers from uh, parts of Europe, uh, Muslim soldiers who wanted to fight and kill Americans, who were preparing to, as they said, martyr themselves, came to Fallujah. And... Uh, they came with heavy weapons and ammunition, and they were ready for a fight. They were looking for a fight. So by the time the Americans and the coalition and the Brits really take to task what's happened in Fallujah, uh, they realize that the city is basically lost, and if you want to take it back, it will require a massive engagement. And again, this is really the second part of the Iraq War. And remember, the first part only lasted about a month. The first part was against Saddam's army. That was an easy win for the Americans and the Brits and the coalition. This part is now fighting insurgencies that are popping up uh, all over the countryside. So how do you capture a city? I mean, I want you to think about that. Don't think about the Civil War. Don't think about the American revolutions. Don't think about the ancient world. Cities have always been attacked. In the modern era, in the 21st century, how does one capture a city. Well, look at the negatives. It's big, there's a lot of people. 
And it has a couple ways in and a couple ways out. It's a city. Alleyways, buildings. But look on the positive side. If you can control critical points, you can control who goes into the city and almost certainly who goes out. So before the attack on Fallujah, the second battle, we'll call this Operation Phantom Fury. What a name, by the way. These guys knew what they were doing. Um, they took steps to make sure that the people in the city were who they wanted to be there. They told civilians, get out while you can, a military operation is coming. This is not done in secret. They put guards all around the city exits to make sure that if any suspected terrorists tried to leave, they couldn't. They let families and, and individuals, again, it's a city of 300,000, get out of the way. And they prepared for the fight itself. Next came the airstrikes. You want to soften up a target, how do you do it? Well, before you send troops in, uh, you do what happened before the invasion of Baghdad. You shock and awe, uh, release all kinds of uh, heavy artillery and ordnance, uh, and do some severe damage. The American forces with the British and the Iraqis who were helping them uh, turned out to be about 13,000 people, a little more than that, 13,500. And these were the people that would storm in and take Fallujah in a pretty impossible situation. I have some figures here. It's not probably worth it's probably worth mentioning. Um, 6,500 Marines, 1,500 Army soldiers, 2,500 Navy personnel in support roles. Uh, the groups that participated, because you may be one of them, so I want to make sure everyone gets their due, initially uh, will be 3rd Battalion 1st Marines, 3rd Battalion 5th Marines, the Navy, the Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 4 and 23, uh, you may know them better off as the CBs, Construction Battalion, they, they turn that to CBs, uh, they handle a lot of the logistical work, uh, as well as the 2nd Battalion 7th Cavalry. And here's another one of these historical little tropes. The 7th Cavalry is involved in what is easily the most ferocious and terrible fighting of the Iraq War. Remember the 7th Cavalry, we've talked about them twice already this season. The 7th Cav was involved in the Battle of the Yodrang Valley in the Vietnam War, some 40 years before this. First opening action of the war has its own episode. And the 7th Cav was also George Armstrong Custer's group that was wiped out at Little Bighorn. So, I mean, this is historically one of these sort of, you know, oh heck moments, so to speak. Keep it, keep it G-rated. Um that we can see. I mean, this is the 7th Cav. And here they are again. Of course, not knowing what it will be. Um, there is 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry, U.S. Army, 2nd Battalion, 12th Cav, U.S. Army. 2,000 Iraqi troops uh, as well. On the British side, uh, the 1st Battalion of the Black Watch was set to participate in this. Uh, they would serve a limited role. They would lose men, so I don't want to take that away from them. Uh, but their role would be to guard the perimeter of the city to make sure that during the fighting, no one escaped using the highways. And the Black Watch is also one of these great historic uh, military units. The Black Watch uh, was fighting at the Battle of Bushy Run. The Black Watch uh, fought in the American Revolution. The Black Watch fought in World War II. Uh, so again, you have these historical precedents that are just just really, uh, really fascinating. The attack on Fallujah, Operation Phantom Fury, begins in earnest 
November 7th, 2004, and it begins with a diversionary tactic. Now, if you want to think about Fallujah easily, let's view it from above, Google Earth style. You know, I can say that now, you know what it means. People before maybe wouldn't. And what you'd see is you could attack from the north or the south. The initial attacks began the evening of November 7th at night, and they swept up from the south. They were led by the Iraqi 36th Commando Battalion and U.S. Special Forces. Uh, 1st and 2nd Platoon, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 9th Infantry uh, Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 2nd Infantry Division, 3rd Platoon Alpha Company, 72nd Tank Battalion, uh, and 3rd Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. Um, these people would attack from the south. Because at this point, the only groups left in Fallujah uh, are a few civilians, but mostly foreign Al-Qaeda-aligned fighters. And these weren't just random people. Maybe some of the foreigners were, but these were also Saddam's premier soldiers who were out of work. So they knew what they were doing. And the attack in the south uh, was mostly, again, done as a diversion. They wanted to distract these uh, terrorist groups uh, so they didn't know where the main attack would come from. Most were expecting the attack from the north. But when you have these activities in the south, that's when things really start to uh, heat up. Uh, even though it was a diversion, there was some success. Major bridges over the Euphrates River were taken. Uh, the bridge where the four security contractors were killed and mutilated was also retaken. So there was some importance there. But the primary attack came from the north. And it was really a group effort. Uh, the CBs, the Navy CBs, uh, would take care of the electrical power generators in the region that would basically shut the whole city down uh, in terms of electricity and communication. And the rest of the troops would sweep in along the way. Now, we could get into the details of uh, how and when people fought. You know, you can look at maps and you can trace this. We love to do this with the Civil War battles and the Revolutionary War battles. But I think it's much better served if I just describe it to you as the men and women who fought it would have seen it. Uh, we call it house-to-house fighting. And it is a nightmare. You're in a modern city. The city, at first glance, can be a ghost town until somebody starts shooting at you. Now, these uh, Al-Qaeda operatives were no dummies, but the soldiers who fought there would tell you these guys knew what they were doing. They hid in very specific buildings. They set booby traps all around. They'd brick off stairways. They literally bricked off stairways. They knew that coalition forces would use. Uh, so when Americans came into that city, they were basically walking into a city that was wired for a fight. I don't mean to make light of this, but this is sort of like the movie Home Alone. Macaulay Culkin sets up the whole house with traps and gizmos, uh, and the burglars have to come in and contend with them before they can even get to Kevin McAllister. Imagine that on an infinitely and vastly more important scale. And that's sort of how the Iraqi insurgents and the foreign terrorists will level the playing field. The Americans have body armor. The Iraqis and the terrorists know that. They seek out uh, shots to the face specifically. Uh, American soldiers have to go house to house. That's the, the, the thing I want you to remember about this battle. House to house fighting. In very specific ways. Somebody kicks open the door... And there's either a machine gun there or there isn't. 
and they clear each house. But again, before long, you're going to see that. Uh, some of the insurgents would fill homes with gasoline, propane tanks, again, whatever they had, and wired for booby traps. So they wait till coalition forces came in and blow it up. Uh, it was nightmarish. It was hellish fighting. And that's the way it looked. You would have big bursts of, of, of machine gun fire that would die down. Terrorists would relocate themselves, readjust. Uh, and American and coalition forces would have to, again, play that game, going house to house to determine um, exactly where uh, the enemy was. After almost a month of fighting, you start to see things calm down. By November 13th, again, this happens on the 7th, most of the heavy fighting ends in terms of being continuous fighting. By November 16th, after nine full days of fighting, uh, one Marine commander described the action as, quote, mopping up pockets of resistance. And for the next 23 days, and really for the next month after that, uh, you sort of have this uneasy uh, lack and lull in activity followed by large outbursts of violence. Uh, by late January, U.S. combat units will leave the area, uh, and the idea is that Fallujah is captured again. It's in the hands of the American forces. Uh, easily the most horrendous fighting of the Iraq War. And by the way, probably the most horrendous fighting for any American soldier to experience in the last 50 years. I mean, not since the Vietnam War did you see urban combat like that. It was terrifying stuff. And when I do meet veterans, I always make it a point to thank them, and you should too, and someone tells me they were in Anbar province. That's where Fallujah is located in 04, 05, 06. I always just, you know, I want to hug them because I know just from looking, just from viewing secondhand, how horrible it must have been. And when you don't treat this war like you would treat other wars in terms of how you talk about the veterans, uh, you really miss what they did. You know, we never had a victory parade for the soldiers who fought in the Iraq War when they came home. And that's always bothered me. You look at soldiers coming home from wars, they have victory parades. But we really haven't had any uh, for the Iraq War. Uh, you saw a couple cities do it here and there, but there was no National Day of Recognition. And I think that's because we sort of drifted away from how we view war and military conflict because we do it so much. So, again, those people never had that celebration, but that shouldn't stop you from thanking them for what they did. Uh, Fallujah was hell on earth for them, uh, but it was an important victory. Now, where does that stand now? Well, Fallujah was recently recaptured by the group called ISIS, uh, who, by the way is mostly made up of probably the same people fighting at Fallujah. Former Iraqi Republican Guard fighters. It's a Sunni movement uh, that uh, have nowhere else to go, so they fight. ISIS will talk a lot about religion as their drive, but that's sort of uh, an outer coating. If you look at who they are, most of them, and this is not just me saying this, I mean, the evidence is there, they've been identified, most of them are just former 
uh, members of Saddam's Ba'athist regime repackaged as something else. So why don't historians talk about Iraq as a war, as a major moment? Uh, one, you do need more time. You do need to see how it ends because it hasn't ended yet. But two, we're just, just understanding it. I mean, uh, it's not easy, but it's one that's definitely worthwhile. If you are listening to this, maybe someday you will be the historian who writes the great book on the Iraq War after the fact. Your kids will look at this uh, as we look at previous wars. We're in it right now, so it's very hard for us to see that, but it's an important one. Operation Phantom Fury, the Second Battle of Fallujah, uh, stands as the harshest fighting of the Iraq War. And easily the, the, the single most finding moment of Phase 2 of the Iraq War. But the Iraq War has a lot of work to be done. You know, I could literally do an entire season on the Iraq War. We did one in the American Revolution. Why not? Maybe we will. I think that would be a worthwhile study. But go out, find the soldiers, and talk to them. Read the books they write, because they're publishing them. And I think you'll find it very rewarding. Thank you for joining us. This one's for you, Chris. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.